While you're turning your Bible to Deuteronomy 23, I wanted to uh, let you know, as I try to each Sunday now, just ways that you can be uh, giving generously to the church financially. We don't pass around offering plates any longer during our services, but uh, if you'd like to make contribution to our general fund, uh, you can do so. We always have offering boxes in the back of the church. Uh, you can give online. You can mail in uh, checks to the church as well. But thank you for your generosity. Uh, you all are blowing me away uh, and our pastors away with your generosity this fiscal year. Uh, we are far ahead of our budget uh, because of your generosity, your selflessness, and giving. So thank you uh, for your regular generosity to our general fund that helps us reach the nations and the generations with the gospel. But I also want to say this weekend a special thank you to all of you who came last night. We had our annual art gala uh, that uh, was raising funds for Adam and Claire Pennard uh, to be able to send them next school year to the Pastors College in Louisville, Kentucky that our denomination uh, runs because because they are hoping to come back and with a team of people from our church to be able to plant a church in North Manchester where they uh, live and have bought a house uh, and have been living their early married days there. And I don't have a final number yet. Uh, there's still gifts coming in and calculations being made. But uh, we made last night more than we've ever made in any art gala uh, previously. It seems like with all the computations, one of that's going to be over $20,000 that was raised just in one evening. Uh, so all of that is going to go to help them with the funds for next school year to be able to, to pay for schooling, rent, things like that, uh, that they'll need during that 10 months that they're at school. But thank you to all of you who helped in any capacity uh, for that event in any way. Uh, it was a joy to see not just financial generosity, but to see your contributions, to see a myriad of people helping afterward to set up chairs and things so we could have our seats to sit in again today. So thank you uh, for your generosity. And I also want to say before we turn to the text, uh, thank you for your prayers for me personally. Uh, many of you know last weekend uh, I was leading my grandmother's funeral uh, and it was wonderful to have Pastor Larry uh, to preach for us uh, last Sunday. I miss being here with you all, but I think the Lord answered your prayers uh, for my family and me and it was a good service. Got to minister to my extended family and tell them about the same Christ that my grandma had and so thank you for praying for me do i need a new microphone all right i'll do a handheld how about that all right can you hear me better now okay sorry if you did i'm not going to repeat everything i just said so hopefully if you didn't hear it in the back the people in the front can tell you later uh but uh, thank you for your prayers for me and my family, even last week. But it's good to be back with you. Uh, as I was preparing for this text today, uh, Deuteronomy 23, start at verse 15 and following, um, a quote came to mind uh, that was given by Abraham Kuyper at the inaugural address of a school called the Free University. That's a famous quote. You've probably heard, or some of you probably have heard of it before. Uh, but he said this at that inaugural address. He said, there's not a square inch and the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, notice the capital S there, it's not an adjective, it's a title, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And what he was trying to say is that all of the universe and every little bit of our existence uh, belongs to him, is now under his authority as the resurrected Jesus, as we remembered last Sunday, that God the Father has made him Lord of all. And so every domain of life, every second of it, every aspect of it comes under his sovereignty, his rule. And I was reminded of that 
text or that quote because as we come to this point in Deuteronomy this Sunday and then when we get back into the text after a break next Sunday, which I'll tell you about, uh, in this section of Deuteronomy, we're going to see and really feel kind of the, the broadness of the scope of this book. Uh, that it covers all sorts of topics, covers all sorts of subjects. We've seen it already, if you've been with us as we've gone through Deuteronomy. Uh, we've seen Moses, as the, the context of Deuteronomy is Moses giving the law of God again, helping apply it even to the people of Israel as they get ready to go into the promised land finally. And we've seen him give a, a instruction on behalf of God on a broad scope of issues. We've seen things, just to name a few, we've seen things like dietary laws, we've seen festivals that they were supposed to keep. We've seen how they were supposed to go about warfare, how they were even supposed to dress, things like that. We've seen a whole bunch of topics, but mostly they've been covered slowly. There's maybe a paragraph about each one, or Moses would have spoken for a few minutes maybe about them. Where we're entering now into this section of Deuteronomy is almost like rapid fire of instructions, where it'll be like what we call a verse or two verses about subject, next subject, next subject, next subject for a couple chapters even. And so we're going to feel the scope and the breadth of this book pretty acutely this morning and, and the following Sundays uh, that come. Because in this chapter, the middle of, of 23 and following, we're going to start to see him uh, address subjects like whether to charge interest on loans, uh, keeping of vows that are made, whether or not to eat from other people's fields. We're going to see him talk about remarriage after divorce. We're going to see him talk about leprosy and loans and all sorts of things and we could have, there. we debated a little bit, you could, for these couple chapters, you could take a couple months to go through them, or mercifully, we could take a couple Sundays. Uh, so we're going with option number two, to take a couple Sundays uh, to go through these instructions uh, to cover these subjects that Moses spoke on behalf of God uh, to God's people. So we're going to do this this Sunday, and then uh, two Sundays from now, we'll, we'll get in even deeper into chapter 24 and into chapter 25. But what we're going to read today, what I'm going to read for you is Deuteronomy 23, start at verse 15, uh, and then we're going to go into chapter 24 down to verse 5. And so that's what we're going to read and try to walk through today, and I'll do my best to, to do justice to this text, but it may feel like we're kind of glossing over or skipping across the surface because just the number of subjects and the, 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 there's many roads we could turn off that we're not going to be able to, but I want to read this text for us, then we'll walk back through it and see what the Lord would have to say to us through this text. So I trust you found Deuteronomy 23. I'll start at verse 15. Moses continued saying this, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. 
You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And then into chapter 24, the first five verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. This is the word of the Lord. It is hard with some of these texts that in the section we're in to find a through line, to find a, a summary to just uh, easily encapsulate these commands. Uh, so I'm going to go with a high-altitude summary of these, and then we'll walk back through it. But the summary I would make of this text is that every area of your life affords you opportunity to honor the Lord. Every area of life affords you opportunity to honor the Lord or to dishonor the Lord. And, and Moses is addressing numerous subjects here. We saw several of them are going to walk back through, but there's countless others. Every inch, like Kuiper said, belongs to the sovereign one, right? That every aspect of our life belongs to him. And these are just examples of that, of how living with the lordship of God should look in life. And so I want to walk back through these and try to explain what Moses was saying, what he was commanding or forbidding uh, to the people of Israel, and then try to help with each of them see at least briefly what relevance it may have or does have upon us as the people of God today. So we're going to have to quickly go through these, uh, and they, they may raise questions in your mind. That would be good and appropriate. Discuss that with others afterwards, uh, but we're, we'll do our best to make it through. So if you start back uh, in verses 15 to 16 of, of chapter 23, I, I would describe what he is communicating in this law here as welcoming the vulnerable foreigner, and we'll have these headings up on the screen as we go, but welcoming the vulnerable foreigner. And you may wonder why, if you remember me reading it at the beginning, why I would say foreigner. Uh, there, there's nothing necessarily that explicitly says that in this text. But what Moses is talking about is he's talking about servants or slaves who have escaped, who have fled from their master. And he, Moses is commanding that the Israelites welcome that slave, that they welcome that servant, that they don't give him up, that they don't return him uh, back to his master. And the reason I and, and various commentators, uh, pastors throughout time, have thought that this is addressing uh, the reception of 
foreign slaves into the nation of Israel is because you'll notice in the next law, starting in verse 17, it's like Moses kind of turns it back to talk specifically about Israelites again, where he says, the daughters of Israel shall not do this. The sons of Israel shall not do this. And so it seems like uh, in 15 and 16, he's talking about slaves of foreign nations, people who had been servants and surrounding nations and who have fled from their master and come into the land of Israel. Uh, And Moses again and again in Deuteronomy on behalf of God is telling the Israelites to not make treaties with foreign countries, right? Like to not have like countries even today have like extradition laws. Like if our people come to your country and they're fugitives, you send them back to us, we'll do the same for you. Moses has told the Israelites again and again, don't make covenants, don't make treaties with other nations. And so it would make sense if people from other countries, other nations come into the nation of Israel, that Moses would not want want the Israelites to feel obligated to return them to these foreign nations, to to send them back uh, to their masters. He's telling them to welcome them, to not give them up. But more than not returning them, did you note, it's not just that he says, don't return them. He says in verse 16 that that servant who has fled into your nation shall dwell with you in your midst. And not only that, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, whatever, wherever it suits him, do not wrong him. That would have been a revolutionary law in the ancient world. Most nations had those agreements with each other that if, if your people come here, not only will we not accept them, we'll send them back. But if they ever even entertained the idea of welcoming an outsider in, they would not let them just live where they wanted. Uh, they would not treat them with such respect. They would maybe be skeptical of what had happened and, and why this person was fleeing. But for these Israelites, as they went into the land, Moses is saying, if that situation comes and these servants have fled from other nations and come to live with you, let them live among you. Welcome them in. I appreciate the emphasis from Marcos even on God's welcoming of us into his people. And he's saying, be similar. It, I don't have time to get into how that contrasts with the start of 23, uh, because if you were here uh, a few Sundays ago, we talked about how God excluded many people. But here you see the inclusive heart of God, uh, that people, foreigners who had escaped slavery, are wel- to be welcomed into the people of God. So what bearing does this have on us, okay? We, as the church, as the people of God today, are not a nation state, right? Like we don't have governors and presidents or emperors or kings. We don't have these structures. We're a culture within a culture as a church. And so we don't have to make decisions as a church about whether to give asylum to people who come from other countries into our country, right? We, that's not our prerogative. That's not our purview. And so I don't think that we read this text and just should read the United States as a Christian nation that needs to follow these laws about extradition and things like that. I don't want to get into that. But what I do want to say, and I think this text makes a claim upon us, is that as the people of God, we should have a welcoming disposition to outsiders. Right? That, that we should not see people who have been the enemies of God, but who are coming to us as the people of God saying, I want to live among you. I want to know about this Christ that you talk about. I want to live and be part of your community. We should not instinctually press them away or make them prove themselves first. We should welcome them in, tell them about Christ, tell them why we believe in him, why we rest our souls upon him, why we live for him. 
Uh, we should have a welcoming disposition to vulnerable outsiders, especially if there's been hurt in their life, especially if they've been mistreated. We should not just add to that by holding them at arm's length and refusing them entrance, but open the doors wide of the gospel as much as we can, as much as God allows. Tell them about Christ. Welcome them in to our community to learn to know him, to follow after him. We should have a welcoming disposition as the people of God. And I so appreciate the start of this text that you see one commentator said that in, in this Deuteronomy law, this second law, that the, value, that the law values the needs of the weak above the claims of the strong. Like it could have been easy for them to think, well, these people belonged in some sense to those masters, that they are obligated to go back. Those, those masters in those other countries, they have a claim, like a legal claim upon these people. We're obligated to follow that. But Moses is saying in that situation, no, that the, value, the, the needs of the weak, the ones who've been mistreated, presumably, who fled to us, we care for them. Uh, we, we care for the one who is hurting, the one who is weak. So that, that's the first law out of, out of the gate here in this section is the welcoming of the vulnerable foreigner that should make us think, what is my disposition? What is our disposition to vulnerable people, to people who are seeking to come toward us as the people of God? The next two sections, or if you want to call them sections, the next two laws are financial in nature. Uh, they have to do with money, resources, economics. Uh, you see the first one in verses 17 and 18. Uh, and how I would uh, frame this uh, law, this instruction from Moses, I would say this way is that integrity should undergird generosity. That there should be integrity that's undergirding generosity. So what is this law in verses 17 and 18? What, what is happening here? What is Moses describing? Without getting into a lot of detail, that would be unnecessary. It was common in ancient religions and the, the, the religious practices of the, the nations that would have been surrounding Israel. It was a common practice for women and even men as well to practice prostitution, but to do so with some sort of perceived religious benefit that would come. Like they would be working for the temple of their gods, right? And the, the fees that were paid, they would turn around and give for the upkeep of those sanctuaries or for the, the, the benefit, perceived benefit of this religion or their gods. And so you could see Moses here. He's saying in verse 17, first of all, no son or daughter of Israel should be involved in prostitution. Just outright, he says that. That should not become any practice that, that is done by any uh, person in the nation of Israel. We should not mimic the practices of these foreign religions. That is out of bounds for how we operate. But the law continues, and what he's really driving at even further in verse 18, is he's saying that if even if that was allowed, which it's not, but even if it was allowed, and there was this prostitution that takes place for religious reasons, he says in verse 18, even if that was, even if there was fees acquired, even if there was, like, the wages of dogs would have been talking about male prostitutes. Like, that was a term that would have been used. He's saying, even if that does happen, even if you stoop to that, do not turn around and use those funds that were given immorally, that were given for immoral reasons. Do not try to turn around and use those funds for perceived God-honoring reasons, like the upkeep of the tabernacle, the upkeep of the temple, the provision of priests, things like that. He's saying, if this was a, if this is, we use the term dirty money, that may be shorthand that you guys, that we all are familiar with. If, he's saying, if there's dirty money, don't try to use it for clean purposes. 
right? Don't try to take money that's been acquired by disobedience, by actions that dishonor God, and seek to turn it around and try to justify it by using it for noble purposes, by trying to use it to benefit, in our day, churches or missionaries or, or things like that. Dirty money should not be used for clean reasons. And, and where that hits us, I, I would say this, I, I highly doubt this is a practice that any of us are stooping to and that we're seeking to gain money in these ways and that we're seeking to turn around and give it to the church or to other noble purposes. But what I think he's driving at with this law is that generosity, just giving money to something, even a good cause, is not just noble in and of itself. Like if, if those funds were gained, if they were secured immorally, like God is not desirous of that to be turned around and given to his church. God, it, God does not need our money, right? Like It's not as if he's dependent upon us trying to be creative and find immoral reasons to scrape up money to turn around and say, here, God, here's my gift. I acquired it in ways that I'm not proud of and ways that you've even forbidden, but here's my gift to you. Please take it. Please receive it. We should have not just generosity, but we should have integrity that leads to generosity, right? That, that the ways that we're seeking to acquire whatever much or little resources we have should be done with integrity, should be done with, with honor, with in obedience to the ways that God has commanded us to. If we seek to be generous, even to good purposes, without integrity behind it, that is, according to this text, abominable to God. That is not something that is pleasing to him, something that he desires. Uh, and in our day, we may not stoop to, to prostitution to try to gain money, but in our business practices or in our work where we're, we're trying to get a step ahead of people, how often would we be tempted maybe to use inappropriate things like bribery or deception or stinginess maybe and think, because I'm stingy, I can be generous to the church. Uh, how, much, how many of us steal from our companies time? Uh, things that, like there's theft that we can do that we try to gain for ourselves by unrighteous reasons and unrighteous means, money to give to the work of God. That is not honoring to the Lord. He would rather us give little that was gained by integrity, I think, than much that was gained by immorality, right? That he wants us to be people who are marked by integrity even in the way that we gain funds, the way that we gain resource. And so integrity must undergird generosity. This next law, 19 through 20, is another economic. It's another financial one. And this law I would summarize by saying this, is that there should be, that they are to care for the have-nots. And we'll see a parallel to this in just a moment. But that as the people of God, they're to care for the have-nots. And what Moses is saying in 19 and 20, if you look at that, he's talking about whether or not to charge interest on loans. And they would have just, uh, suffice it to say, they would have lived in a very different economic structure than we do today. Interest and charging on loans and stuff has become so common for us, uh, we don't even think about it. Uh, but for them, in their day and age, if there were these loans, he talks about like loans of food, right? Things like that. Like it's not, their loans would have not been for like capital to start a business or like for money to get myself in debt to buy a house or to buy a car or to get an education or those types of things that are more like trying to get ahead, trying to extend my 
kingdom, their loans that he's talking about would have been typically loans that were given to people who were in financial duress, like who, who, did not, who were in poverty, who needed just sustenance to get by, and their family or people around them would give them of their resources. Uh, and what Moses is saying is, if that's the case, if you're being generous to the people who are the have-nots, who are in a, a vulnerable place, do not see that as an opportunity to gain yourself. Like if, if these people are in a vulnerable spot, they need provision, they need resource, give it to them, like help them, lend it to them, but don't seek to secure interest on top of it. It's almost assumed that they would try to pay them back, right? But he's saying don't see this as a means to gain for yourself. See it as a means to help this brother or sister, help this family, help this, uh, this situation, help alleviate poverty, not just seek to gain for yourself by means of that. Uh, it can be a temptation for many people, even within the church sometimes, sadly, to exploit people who are in need. Uh, when people are lacking resource, sometimes they're willing to enter into arrangements that are, are bad for them, ultimately. And, and people can take advantage of them, where they lend them money, but, but say, you need to pay me back such and such. Or I'll do this for you, but you need to give such and such back to me as a willingness, as a sign of good faith for me being willing to do this. We should never, as we're seeking to help people who are in need, seek to do it as a way to gain ourselves. That should be off limits for us as the people of God, that we should, seek to, we should seek to alleviate their need, not to compound it, right? We should seek to help them, not to, to burden them further. And so Moses is saying to care for the have-nots. Don't charge interest on them. He says to foreigners where it's more of a business deal, more of a marketplace transaction, he says that's fine to charge interest to them on the things that you lend to them. But he's saying when it's family, when it's brother, when it's the, the people of God, do not seek in alleviating their need to seek to build your own kingdom, to seek to pad your own pocket. So care for the have-nots. Continuing to move. So 21 through 23, as we keep going through these laws, are about vows, both the making and the keeping of vows. So he gives a, a few verses about that. And he, he imagines that somebody has made a vow, if you look at verse 23, he says that they have voluntarily vowed something, right? So he's not talking about uh, just the general obedience of God's people to the commands that God has made, right? God has given them, all, and even in this, is giving them all sorts of laws they were to follow, definitely. But he knows that there's times in the life of a person of God where they are tempted to and maybe even do make promises to God above and beyond that thing, right? How many of us, this is kind of trite, but if we get into a pinch sometimes, especially when we're younger or more immature, we say things rashly like, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll do such and such. Or if you do this for me, God, please, I will never do X, Y, or Z again, right? Like we, we do these things where we make vows, we make promises that scripture didn't command of us, but we just have conjured them up in our own mind, in our own heart. We've uttered them to God. That's the type of thing that Moses is describing here. And he says in 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. And as, as he continues to go on in 22, he says, if you refrain from vowing, you won't be guilty of sin, right? So we don't have to make those promises, right? We don't have to, to commit ourselves to certain things or to stopping certain things if they're outside the purview of the Bible. But Moses is saying to these people, if you did, if you do make vows like that, keep it. 
Seek to keep it to the best of your ability and even to not delay in fulfilling it, right? It, I would summarize what he's saying is here is that vows should be made slowly but kept eagerly, right? Like that we shouldn't be quick and hasty in making vows to God. But he says if, for them, if they did make a vow, that they should be eager to keep it. They should not delay in fulfilling it. This is a fascinating subject to think on. You could do a deep dive into this subject of vows and how, how we should think of vows as the people of God today. I'll refer you, and you can do some more reading and thinking and praying about this later, but Jesus himself taught about this, uh, about the, keep, the making and the keeping of vows. If you look in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, around verse 34 in that area, Jesus taught about this, about vow making and keeping, and what Jesus himself said is this, is he said that the best thing, it, he said, was to not make an oath at all. That's what Jesus said. That's not just me saying that. Jesus said that the best thing, if you're considering making vows or not to God, is just to not do it at all. Uh, to, to, he says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Like, to, the, to do what God has said. Don't do what God has forbidden, right? But to not be this person who is seeking to put yourself on the hook again and again for things that you're going to promise to never do again, or I'll, I'll do this for you, God, if you do this for me. I would say this. This has been true in my life. Maybe you've seen it be true in your life, that impulsive vows to God are typically insincere vows to God. When we make vows impulsively to God, like in a moment of desperation, we're usually, I think, if we were to be able to see into the depths of our heart, insincere in that thing. We are feeling the squeeze of a situation. We're feeling agony or anxiety in our hearts. And we need to be measured as we think about commitments that we make to the Lord and before the Lord. We should not be making them rashly or quickly. I would suggest in following the teaching of Jesus, we should not be making them at all. And I wanted to stop here for a second because in thinking about this vow making, I, I was thinking of, at least in my own experience, when I've been tempted to do this, to make vows to God about things I will do or won't do, and maybe you can relate to this, is I think typically what's been going on in my heart in those moments is that I feel somehow like I need to bargain with God. Like I need to prove myself to him. I, I like realize, man, I have failed in a certain way again and again and again, or I am feeling my weakness in a certain way. And it's like, how? I mean, you see it in the experience, right? That we say, God, like I promise like i'm serious this time i, I want to prove myself to you i will do such and such i will never do this again and we feel this need to show ourselves to the lord to prove ourselves to god and what i want to tell you if you've never heard this before if you've heard it a thousand times is that we don't need to prove ourselves to god to gain his favor we can't prove ourselves to god to gain his favor if you make a vow and keep it you make some outrageous vow, and you keep it somehow. You are not gaining any righteousness before God, right? Like the, your righteousness, if you have it, your good standing with God has been gained for you by Jesus keeping his vows, right? By Jesus keeping his promises that he made to the Father to obey him, to, to follow him. Jesus kept his word. Jesus obeyed perfectly. And when we feel this temptation in our hearts to say, God, I will prove myself. I'll show you this. I'm serious this time. Like, if you'll help me do this, I'll do this for you. We don't need to and ought not to bargain with God. 
Like Jesus has gained all righteousness that we need. And so we need to not make vows to God because of what Christ has done for us. So that's the making and keeping of vows. If we go next section, 24 to 25, so wrapping up chapter 23, I, I would call this as a contrast to what we read earlier. I, w- I would summarize these verses as talking about respecting the haves. If, if he talked about caring for the have-nots when he was talking about those loans and not charging interest to the people who are in need, these verses are kind of the flip side of that, where he's imagining people who have a lot. They have fields. They have grain. They have vineyards. They have all these grapes. He's saying to the people of Israel, make sure that you respect those people. Make sure that you show respect to them and their property. If we think of Deuteronomy as a lot of like unpacking of the Ten Commandments, this one would have to do with theft, I think, right? Like that, that, uh, that there's a shared resource of the people of God, but we do, ought not to presume upon that. So what he's talking about, 24 and 25, he's imagining either a vineyard or a field that's owned by a fellow Israelite that has plenty of grapes or that has plenty of standing grain. And what he tells them is when you're there, and I, he doesn't even, it's are frustratingly generic sometimes, <laughs> these laws, right? Like if you're there, who knows if they were like coming for a, meal or they're just walking by or something who knows but he says if you're there in their field in their vineyard you're allowed to eat of it right like you can take what will fit in your hand or what will fit in your mouth or in your stomach you're allowed to eat of those things you're allowed to take of them even though they're not technically yours they belong to this landowner Uh, but but what he is telling them even as he encourages that and that would have been instructive to the landowners to not be uh telling people get off my lawn type of thing like get off my property but being willing to let people eat of it what he tells them is that they should not uh, i would say it this way that even as they eat that they shouldn't bring a satchel or a sickle with them right like that they can eat what will fit in their mouth and in their stomach but they're not to grab a bunch more grapes and put it in their bag to take with them to store up at their place or to sell in the marketplace right he's saying eat your fill while you're there Uh, take what you can fit in your arms but don't bring a sickle and cut down tons of grain and bring some friends and then take all that brother or sister's grain with you back to your place to store up Uh, and so what this law is doing it's seeming like it's protecting that landowner it's saying the people of God should have shared resources there should be a willingness to share from what God has given to us and that we can benefit each other in that but even as we receive the generosity of other people or we benefit from their resource that God's given them, we shouldn't presume upon it. We shouldn't exploit them and their generosity and think, because they've given me this much, I can just take even more. That is this gray line. Again, it's nonspecific, but where it becomes moving from a God-honoring sharing to where it becomes more like theft, where it becomes more uh, a taking of what is not actually yours in a way that is inappropriate, that is unloving. And I think part of why God leaves these laws generic and not specific is because he wanted people, even in whether or not to eat food or how much to take, he wanted them to be more driven by their love of neighbor than by the fear of the law, right? Like he wanted them to have a respect for each other, both for the people who needed something to eat, but also for the people who've invested and grown these things, that there should be a reciprocal love and appreciation. Uh, I think that should mark us today that we should appreciate the generosity of our brothers and sisters, but not presume upon it. Uh, when we get into the New Testament, into the church age, I don't think what we see, even in the book of Acts, although some people may try to argue this, 
is that the people of God should strive to just have every person have equity, that everybody has the same possessions, everybody has the same resource, same size house, same uh, shoes, same clothes, same cars. Same, like, we're not to strive for equity and just direct equal outcomes, but... Sometimes we say that and then just act like we can just indulge in greed and like keep things to ourselves. What we do see in the New Testament is that though there's not equity, there is sharing that is genuine and sincere and thorough, that that's not stingy, that what is mine truly is yours in a limited sense, right? But it really is sincerely yours, that as we have need, we share, we benefit each other, but we don't take advantage of each other. And I, I think that is how we should strive to live even as Christians today. We turn to the, the last two sections here uh, in chapter 24, uh, where you're going to see with these last two laws in today's text is that they have to do with marriage. Uh, and they're going to, you'll see, and you may have picked up on this even in, as it was read, it's going to, the first, more longer section, verses 1 to 4, address what I would call like the harsh realities that often accompany marriage. It talks about divorce and remarriage and the pitfalls that can happen in that. But then verse 5 addresses and even encourages the pursuit of the bright, the brightness that marriage can bring, the goodness of the gift of marriage and what it can be. So I love and appreciate that the law of God both anticipates the harsh realities of life, right, but encourages the, the bright ideal that God made us to live in and to strive for. And so we're going to look at both of these. Uh, the first one, verses 1 through 4, uh, this is where Moses is addressing uh, the, what, how what I would summarize, the protecting of the vulnerable divorcee. The, the, this lady, which I'm going to describe her situation, a hypothetical lady, but it was real in their circumstance, who's been divorced a few times now. Moses is commanding them to protect her, to look out for her. Uh, and this is what he's imagining. If you read this text back, uh, if you look at verses 1 through 3, that's kind of the, describing the condition, this imaginary scenario that involves numerous things. And then verse 4 is the actual law, right? Like verse 4 is the actual law, and what it specifically is about is about whether this woman is allowed to remarry this man who was her original husband. Uh, so th that's the actual law, but verses 1 through 3 are describing the situation. This is what Moses is describing as a hypothetical in 1 to 3, that he addresses in verse 4. In verses 1 through 3, he's describing this hypothetical where there was this husband and wife, where they, they were married, and then he imagined that this man, again, this is frustratingly vague sometimes, it says that if, he fi if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her. So there, there's something that's happened. It's, it's not, I would suggest, not adultery, like, he already gave us instruction, or gave them instruction about that, right, back in 22. If it was adultery, there was death that was supposed to take place, right? So this is something other than that, uh, where this husband has found indecency in her. I don't even want to speculate what that is, although I have ideas of what maybe was in mind here. Uh, that he finds some indecency in her. She finds no favor in his eyes. Then the scenario keeps unfolding. It says he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. What that would have been, and it was a practice, Moses isn't prescribing this. He's describing what had already been happening. 
it seems like that there would be this certificate that would be given by the husband to this wife that he's sending away. And what that certificate would have done would have been to show her and show others who would potentially consider marrying her that she legitimately had been divorced by this man. That she didn't just leave him, she didn't just flee from him, but that he is sending her away. And so it would potentially at least give her recourse to be married again. And that's what he imagines happening, right? That she departs out of his house. Verse 2, she goes and becomes another man's wife. Then verse 3, as this scenario unfolds, that second husband of this woman, he even uses stronger terms, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hands, sends her out of his house. And then he's imagining like a, a other hypothetical, or if that second husband dies. So whether it was because of him divorcing her or whether he dies, now she's unmarried again. Finally, you get to the law of verse 4. What Moses is describing is he's saying that first husband, he calls him her former husband who sent her away. What Moses is saying is that he may not take her again to be his wife. He says, after she has been defiled. That term defiled, I think, means not defiled in a general sense, like toward every potential husband, right? Because she's been married the second time, right? What he's specifically saying is that she's been defiled in a sense in relation to that first husband. Uh, that there has been this fracture, this breach that has taken place with him sending her away, him finding no favor in her eyes, sending her away. And what Moses is prohibiting is her becoming his wife again for a second time. And I very much appreciate this because how I would understand this text, I think what Moses is getting at here, and God through Moses, is that he is looking out for this woman, right? You could imagine because of the hardness of heart that had developed in, in this even in the Israelites, uh, in their day, there was this temptation to start to lower the marital covenant down and to be quick to divorce, to be willing to find quickly sometimes find no favor in a wife and send her away. And, you could, and this man had done that. And then this other man had done that to her. And what Moses is saying is like, this cannot be. Like you will not disrespect this woman. Just treat marriage like it's just glorified dating. Like that if you find somehow no favor in her, there's some trait in her, and you just want to send her away, you don't get to just keep bringing her back. Like in dating, we break up and get back together again. We break up and get back together again. He is trying to say that divorce is much more than just a breaking up. Like you cannot continue to send this woman away and receive her back purely at your whim. Like when you want and when you see fit. If you have made, going back to the vows, if you have made vows to her, you should keep them. Like, you should not be breaking them and think, I can just reestablish these when I want at my convenience. You have sent her away, brother. Like, I, there is so much that could be said about this subject and how it applies today, about divorce and remarriage. If I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 7, I would be going down a lot of roads about application and situations. Uh, that is the clearest New Testament text about divorce and remarriage. But Jesus himself taught from this text. People questioned him about it when he was ministering publicly. They were trying to trap him in a sense. If you read Matthew 19, for example, the, these people tried to ask Jesus about this very law and saying, is it lawful for us to, to send away a wife for any reason? And Jesus says about this text, because they had started to understand this very text from Deuteronomy 
as a command almost from God, as like a celebration, or not a celebration, but at least an encouragement sometimes of divorce. Like that, that you know what, if stuff doesn't work out, if he finds no favor, or if she finds no favor in his eyes, we can just split, we can divorce. That had developed in Jesus' day. And Jesus, rather than capitulating to that and saying, yeah, that is what Moses was encouraging, Jesus turns a corner that they weren't expecting and says, you know what? The reason this command was even given back in Deuteronomy was because of our hardness of heart. Because we had developed this, and not because divorce is good, but because we have developed this sinful relationship sometimes even with our spouses where we view them as dispensable, where we view them as someone that we can just discard because we don't like them anymore. We don't feel what we used to feel anymore. We can just get rid of them. And Jesus says, from the beginning, it was not so. Then he said that famous line that you'll sometimes hear at weddings, that he said, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus himself taught about the permanence that marriage was to hold, that there was to have this lifelong covenant relationship between a husband and wife of two becoming one. And so Jesus taught about this. This is not a commendation of divorce. It's not a command of divorce. It's a concession that when, when these difficult situations arise, at minimum here in this all we see that there should be a respect for the one who's been dismissed, that there should be a care for them, that there should be a looking out for them that wasn't provided by their spouse, that, that we should seek to care, love for them, look out for them. There is so much that I could speak to about remarriage, about even divorce in our context, but one thing I, I would say is this, is that divorce should never, ever be entertained or entered into flippantly. There, there is clear biblical instruction about what warrants divorce and what does not. That we can preach another time, another sermon. But divorce should not be viewed as a, an option that we can enter into flippantly, that we even consider flippantly because of conflict or frustration. But we should seek to follow biblical command, not just follow the impulses of our hearts when it comes to divorce. And so uh, if, if you have questions about this, I, I would love to talk to you about it because I know there's all sorts of situations, even with us in the room that we find ourselves in now, that we have been in in the past, that we're considering for the future. Uh, I would love, any of our pastors would love to talk to you about this. But while we're on this subject of divorce, one beautiful I think thing I think from this text is this. We're often talked about in the scriptures as the bride of Christ, Right? Him as the groom, the church as the bride. And if you think about this law, how in theory it would apply to even Jesus and us, like we would find no favor naturally in his eyes, right? He had every right to and did send us away. He sent Adam and Eve away from him, right? Because we truly found no favor as human beings in his sight. If this law, the letter of the law, was to be followed, there would be no way for us to return to him, right? If he had sinfully dismissed us, if he had unrighteously dismissed us, we would not be able to return to him. But he did not sinfully divorce us. He truly, rightfully divorced us in a sense, sent us away. But then he came and laid down his life to gain us back. To, to bring us back. That is an act of grace, not an act of law. Like what the law would have forbid here in a human husband and wife sense, Jesus did in a spiritual and truer sense in giving his life for us and buying us back as his bride, the one who really did dishonor him, the one who really did rebel against him and who deserved to be sent away. Jesus laid his life down to win us back, to gain us back. And we should revel in that. We should glory in that. 
last verse, verse 5. This is one about marriage again, but it's the, the counterpoint. If verses 1 through 4, we're talking about a, a dark situation where there's been divorce and divorce again and this mistreatment of this lady, this, this, this dishonoring of her, addressing of a dark situation. Verse 5 is holding out a bright, noble ideal. Uh, of newlyweds even. If one to four is about how to care for a vulnerable divorcee, verse five here, this last one, is about bonding as newlyweds. That, that's a way that we can bring honor to the Lord. That's a way that we can live for him. What he says in verse five, he says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. So if, if you have been with us for the last few months, you may remember uh, that back in chapter 20, when Moses was giving instructions about warfare uh, and who should go fight and who shouldn't, you may remember there's one verse back in chapter 20, verse 7, where he talked about that one of the exempt categories, people who could and should stay back from fighting, was someone who was betrothed to a lady but not yet married. He said that he should stay back and marry her, that, that they should uh, enjoy those early days of marriage together. So that had already been commanded back in chapter 20. Here it's a step further, where it's not just military duty that this man is exempt from, but he says that he shall not be liable for any other public duty that first year of marriage, that, that he's not to, to have any responsibilities in a formal sense, uh, any sort of public offices or function in the community. And the reason, he says, at the end of verse 5, is that he shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife, or your text may say, to make happy his wife. I like that. Uh, to make happy his wife, so it's less selfish, uh, to, to make happy his wife whom he has taken. And so I, I love this. I so appreciate this. And we could speculate what, what that means, like being happy with her or making her happy. Uh, but it, it could have meant uh, just seeking to just be there with her, even for the potential of conceiving a child, even beginning a, a family biologically. That, that could have been one of the reasons. But at minimum, we know that this being happy with one another, that this making of each other happy, has to do with what was talked about back in the Garden of Eden, where two are to become one flesh, right? That is a mysterious thing that happens when a, a husband and a wife are married, is that the two who are formerly separate become one. And what Moses is suggesting here, I think, and even commanding here, is that that takes time to truly solidify, right? It does truly deeply happen at the moment that they're declared husband and wife, but experientially it takes time to feel that, to, to live in that as a husband and wife. And so I, I love this command. I think it's something we should at least it is a principle, an act again today, that, that when we are newlyweds, if, if the Lord provides us with a spouse and we marry, we should be deliberate and intentional about how we spend the early days of our marriage, that we shouldn't just keep spinning our wheels exactly how we did before, that we should take time to, to deliberately pursue each other. To, to, that's why we do honeymoons often in our culture, right? Is there's this initial experience of bondedness together, but this takes time. It's important to dedicate ourselves to, as husband and wife, to truly bond with each other. I am not like a, a guy who fixes things a lot, but when I do try to do it, I use super glue or Gorilla Glue sometimes is my new thing that I use once in a while. If you read the instructions, I've learned this from not doing it. Uh, if there's something that's been broken as two separate pieces and you apply that glue to it, if you read the directions on the back, which is helpful for people like me, uh, it says that you need to hold those things together for X amount of time, right? 
It's not just like magic, you put it on, they just touch and boom, they stick. But it's like, it's only like 30 seconds or something like that. But you apply pressure to those two things and the glue starts to harden and solidify. And those two things begin to stick even permanently. But if you don't take that time at the beginning to press them together, it doesn't stick. Right? The glue doesn't just magically work. Like marriage doesn't just magically experientially work. It takes experientially effort on our part, time together to talk, to spend uh, time with each other, to get to know each other. It takes time for us. And so if you are a newlywed or soon to be a newlywed, I would encourage you to think about that. Uh, not that you need to literally take a year and have no public duty. You should be part of a church. You should be probably having a job. Uh, you should have responsibilities. Uh, you can't just do nothing but enjoy each other. But you should think about how can I do that? Like how can we do that as a couple as we enter into marriage? And I would say to us who are not newlyweds, is that we should respect them in that effort, right? I think it's especially important for parents of people who have newlywed children uh, to truly respect that they are forming a new union, uh, that, they are, that they are forming a new bond as one, and to not think that they just need to continue to relate to me how they've always related to me, but to respect this new union that God has established is important for us as their family, as their friends, we should spend time with them still. It's not that we just need to send them off to an island for a year or whatever, but we, sh we do need to respect them and, and show respect to God's design of forming a new relationship between this husband and wife. So even bonding as newlyweds and supporting newlyweds in that effort is a way that we can honor the lordship of God. In closing, I, I wanted to, to share this. Uh, I think as we read law, as we read, and Jake alluded to this a few Sundays ago, which I appreciate it. As we read laws like this, sometimes we can start to feel just a sense of duty in our relationship towards God. That I have to do this. I can't do this. I have to do this. I can't do this. Uh, and what I want to encourage you with in closing today is that uh, I was thinking of what happened the weekend after Resurrection Sunday, I don't know if you've thought about this before. We actually know at least one thing that happened the weekend after the resurrection. If you read in John chapter 20, uh, in the, around in the verses 20s or so, uh, there was this disciple Thomas uh, who had not been with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared with them on that first resurrection Sunday. We don't know why, but he wasn't with them. But it says eight days later, which I don't know how they did the math, but approximately the next Sunday, they were together again, and Thomas was with them that time. And Jesus in his kindness comes and meets with them again. And this was a brother who had severe doubts about the Lord, who, who uh, we can speculate about what was going on in his mind. But Jesus entered into that room with the disciples, including Thomas. And the first thing that he said, to, he had said it the first Sunday, and then the first thing that he says now in the presence of Thomas isn't just Thomas shape up like get your act together like what's wrong with you like you need to the first thing that came out of the lips of Jesus the resurrected Jesus that Thomas would have heard was Jesus said peace be with you that's what Jesus said to him and Jesus expected him to follow as his Lord to be sent out as an apostle he was sent out as an apostle but Jesus first spoken word as the, as the resurrected Lord of all wasn't Thomas, do this. He said, peace be with you. And then the command that he gave them, gave to Thomas, 
knowing that Thomas had doubts, knowing that Thomas had fears and struggles, his command to him, you can read it yourself, was do not disbelieve, but believe. That was the core that he was calling, the, the, the kernel, the center of what he was calling Thomas to do was not to do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, but was to believe upon him, to trust in him and what he had just done for him the weekend before, dying for him, being raised for him. And when you hear laws like this, you hear, these are ways I can honor God or dishonor God. I've got to start doing this. I, I need to quit doing this. Let's not stoop back to that making of these hollow vows as if we need to prove ourselves to God, but live in the confidence that Jesus has gained us good standing with God. And that what he calls upon us is to believe upon him, to, to rest our souls upon him, and then start to live for him, not to prove our love to him, right? Not to prove that we're worthy, of God's favor, but because Christ has already proven his love for us. That's why we obey. That's why we live with him as Lord is not to prove to him our love, but in light of the love that he's already clearly shown for us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song after I pray, and then I'll leave you with a few announcements and a word of benediction. But thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, to have your word. Uh, these words that are ancient, that were spoken to the Israelites long ago, but that were recorded for us. Thank you for how they continue to sharpen us, to uh, encourage us, to exhort us, to correct us even. Uh, we pray that we would be faithful to live lives for you, uh, to live lives in every dimension, uh, in ways that bring glory to you, that bring gladness to your heart but may we never feel that we need to prove ourselves to you forgive us for our efforts to try to prove ourselves to you but may we look upon the cross look upon the empty tomb look even at the throne of heaven now and see your son who's died for us who's been raised for us who intercedes for us now and may we know that righteousness has already been gained that we do not need to prove our love to you but we can live in your love for us. And so be honored now and even how we sing. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.